Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2022 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fantastic panel discussions on the threats and opportunities facing our cities. Chaired by Michael Keyes, this episode discusses the opportunities and risks confronting communities beyond the major cities and the priorities for contemporary government intervention. All the while reflecting on former Prime Minister Go Whitlam's short-lived attempts to foster decentralisation in Albury-Wodonga. This panel features Wiradjuri Elder, Auntie Edna Stewart and Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney, Nicole Gurren. We also hear from urban planner Andrew Boyd-Barber and Dr Julie Rudner from La Trobe University, Bendigo. I'll let Auntie Edna start us off with a welcome to country. I'm pleased to be here today and to welcome you to my country, which is a Rajuri country. And as a Rajuri elder, I'd like to welcome you on behalf of my people who are the traditional custodians of this land. I would also like to pay my respects to the elders of both past and present and extend that respect to all here today. I want to thank them for their courage and resilience which they passed on to us during their journey, knowing how to take care of the land and knowing the seasons. My people occupied this area for many thousands of years and they would be frequently joined by other hunting groups that would meet by the river, the Milloa, the Billa. This would be where tribes would trade with each other and aren't without any fights among different tribes. Clans would meet at Mungabarina Reserve and do their trade and then would continue towards Mount Bogon to hunt for the Bogon moth, which was another good food source for for Aboriginal people. And because of the importance of Mungabarina Reserve to not only Rajari people, but to all that in October 2016, when Mungabarina Reserve was recognised and officially declared an Aboriginal place. But to all which I feel proud knowing that this area is now protected. As a child, I remember my grandmother telling me stories about Ur and Pop. They would travel from Warangesda Mission down near Darlington Point to Cumragunya in an old Orson cart and would stop in at Mungabarina and rest and meet up with others along the way before getting back on the track. The Murray River has always been an important place for my people. My sister Muriel and I were asked to be part of the Wagira Trail section known as the Yindamara Walk from Kramer Street End. I have always been involved with teaching our children about our language, Rajuri and culture and how important it is to us. I have been lucky for the last 15 years I have been working at June Public School, and during this time, I've seen the changes that as, as an Aboriginal person, we can now teach our children about our culture and our language. As a child, I didn't learn, nor my daughters at school. We have important dates that we acknowledge, like Sorry Day, and an opportunity to remember and reflect on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids that were forcibly removed from their families. Reconciliation Week. The theme this year, be brave and make a change. 
be brave and tackle the unfinished finished of reconciliation to make a change for the benefit of all Australians. Change starts in our daily life, where you live, work, play and socialise. We celebrate the difference of the world's oldest living culture and language. We represent, acknowledge the diversity of culture, practice spiritual beliefs and language spoken. I look forward to the future in which Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live healthy lives celebrating their culture and their identity. Our bodies are the land and our veins are the rivers that nurture life. Our story is the earth, the water, the wind and the sky. One of my elders passed on these words to me. Niani du garegu bilagalengu. Yani garibu bilagalengu. Niani giri ninyigi. Look after the land and the rivers, then the land and the rivers will look after you. Kwambana Rajirigu, Nurumbang, Rajiri Main Mugawadu, Nindudu, Injimara Dagan, Injimara Main. You are welcome to walk on this country. Respect and honour the land. Respect and honour each other. Mandangu. Thank you. Thank you, um, Auntie Edna, for that very moving welcome to country. I too would like to acknowledge that I'm on beautiful Wiradjuri country today and I'd like to pay my respects to the owners of this land, the traditional owners of this land and thank them for their ongoing custodianship of country. And I also pay my respects to any other Aboriginal people who might be in this room. At this very pivotal period in national history, 50 years after the arrival of the visionary Gough Whitlam government in 1972 and only 100-odd days after the commencement of a new Commonwealth government, from which I hope we might expect similarly high levels of, of visionary aspirations, I'd like to share with you tonight some reflections on our theme, Reimagining Regional Growth. I'll draw largely on a recent Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute study into population, migration and the regions by myself and a large team of colleagues, including Professor Chris Leishman at the University of South Australia and Professor Anne Forsyth at Harvard University. So drawing on this work, I'd like to advance a way of reimagining regional futures that's quite different to the way that regional areas have been imagined in Australia of late. I'll cover briefly the troubled history of regional planning and development, which helps explain why Australia's economic geography has become so increasingly centred on the major cities. And I'd like to highlight some more recent thinking internationally and the new approaches to regional growth that seek to retain and attract people by supporting and reinforcing place-based strengths. But first I want to share a bit of my own story with you. I actually grew up in northern New South Wales, the far north um, northern rivers region, beautiful Bundjalung country, town of Lismore, where my parents moved from Sydney in the early 1970s. Now at that time, demographers had actually identified a bit of a population turnaround. People were moving from the city uh, to regional areas looking for 
new opportunities, a better life, lifestyle. Um, in the Northern Rivers region, okay, it was also an alternative lifestyle that they were after. But my dad was a mechanic, mum was a librarian, and certainly there were opportunities um, to move to regional Australia. Fast forward to the late 1980s and I was leaving Lismore on the very morning after my uh, high school formal. I didn't actually, you know, my head didn't actually hit the pillow. I was off with the, actually it was red, actually I was wearing a red taffeta dress. I think someone in the audience remembers it. The puffy sleeve number, there's some hairspray involved, it was the late 80s. And I was on the 5am bus to Sydney. I had a job waiting for me, okay, it was the start of my uh, quite a long career actually as a checkout chick, but also the promise of a university education and all of the opportunities that that opens up. In those days, Lismore didn't have a university and it didn't have many jobs for young people. Although Southern Cross University was established in Lismore and in surrounding uh, regional areas soon after, Population data still shows that young people, particularly in that 18 to 40-year-old cohort, continue to leave the Northern Rivers and regional Australia more widely. They're also looking for better opportunities. 180,000-odd young people left uh, rural Australia in the previous census period, which is why people in that critical 20 to 44-year age cohort make up only 30% of regional populations compared to 37% in the capital cities. Now, the pandemic interrupted those trends. Australia's combined capital city populations recorded a net loss of 26,000 people in the last financial year as city-siders left mainly Melbourne, must be said, but also Sydney, and they weren't replaced by incoming regional or international migrants. But even this historic loss was only a blip, amounting to 0.1% of our total population, hardly enough to reshape our economic geography. But this sudden rediscovery of regional Australia by city workers who are liberated by their laptops and the COVID mandate to work from home only served to reveal and exacerbate long ignored crises in regional health systems, for instance, and in regional housing markets. So how did regional Australia become the poor cousin of its prosperous, globally connected capital cities? At Federation, only one in three Australians lived in the capitals. Today, nearly half of us live in only three places, Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane. Urbanisation has certainly been a global trend in the past century, but Australia has become one of the most urbanised countries in the world. In Europe, only 35% of people live in cities of populations that exceed 1 million people. Here in Australia, the figure is over 60%. Concern about the dominance of our capital cities and our unbalanced population growth isn't new, though, as people in this room are aware. After the Second World War, the idea of decentralisation started to gain traction. The New South Wales government, for example, set up a decentralisation fund in 1958 to address perceived locational disadvantage experienced by firms seeking to relocate from Sydney, Melbourne or Wollongong. 
Now, it wasn't very effective, and the emphasis soon shifted towards more targeted investment and the idea of, of identifying a limited number of centres. The idea was that these growth centres would divert half a million uh, people from Sydney's population growth by the year 2000. The Australian Labor Party adopted decentralisation as part of its urban policy under Gough Whitlam. Development corporations were set up and funded to plan and develop the growth centres and, of course, the first established was Albury-Wodonga, where the joint Australia-New South Wales-Victoria Development Corporation was founded. Of course, the Whitlam dismissal and the chill winds of political economic change known as neoliberalism signalled a shift away from this bold, visionary thinking, especially at the national level. The Albury-Wodonga Growth Centre initiatives continued, but funding commitments were weakened, there was a much greater emphasis on the private market, and the scale of ambition was rapidly wound back. Urban and regional policy was no longer on the national agenda and has arguably never really returned. Now, of course, there were bigger forces at play in the 1970s and since that time. Advances in technology and transport led to massive industry restructuring from automation to offshore manufacturing. Fewer people employed in primary production, the traditional mainstay of regional economies. Planners had actually expected advances in communications technology and rapid transport to mean the end of distance-based disadvantage. But in fact, the so-called knowledge economy brought with it even more spatial clustering. From Silicon Valley in California to Sydney's CBD and the global cities where multinational firms and financial services have concentrated, the idea of telecommuting remained a fantasy. Spatial clustering or agglomeration in urban areas was self-reinforcing. The more that firms located together, the more they appeared to benefit from access to a deeply skilled labour market and the critical mass needed to support further innovation. Now, as we know, governments have recognised the concentration of economic productivity in the major cities and attributed this to the benefits of agglomeration. In Australia, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane accounted for over 53% of GDP in 2020, according to data from SGS Economics. So in what's become a self-fulfilling trajectory, the more that jobs and population centred in the major cities, the more investment in infrastructure they received, until it has seemed inevitable that economic and population growth would, indeed could, only gravitate to the major cities. Rather than using government investment in infrastructure to shape or reshape the distribution of population and economic opportunity, Australian governments saw their role as enabling and supporting the market. But internationally, things have been different. The benefits of economic agglomeration are certainly recognised, but governments in Europe and North America, and indeed Asia, in fact, have sought to achieve these benefits, often at much lower population thresholds, by supporting diverse and interdependent, polycentric, multi-centred regional areas which are highly connected to each other and to wider markets through flows of people, of course, capital and ideas. Now, I'm thinking of places like the Randstad area, which connects Amsterdam, Rotterdam, 
The Hague and Utrecht in Holland, now the third most productive area in Europe. The so-called golden horseshoe surrounding Toronto in Ontario, Canada, now a major centre for technology-based growth in North America. Or the Oxford to Cambridge arc in the UK, anchored by two of the world's leading universities. The emphasis is on identifying and supporting comparative place-based advantages around industry specialisations, from advanced manufacturing to finance, education, tourism, creative industries, ports and logistics, health or culture. The same approach assists declining and distressed areas as well. For instance, in the UK, special governance arrangements, national funding and long-term planning around locational strengths, such as cultural attractions and key industries, have helped regenerate cities such as Manchester in England's north or Dundee in Scotland, which developed a strong strategy around culture and creative industries to become recognised as UNESCO's first city of design. It would certainly be wrong to say that the international models we examined in our study are fully successful, but there are lessons for Australia. Central governments have an important role in working with and investing in regional areas beyond central cities because of their economic and social significance and the growth potential in their own right. Encouraging agglomeration to occur in regional areas as well as the major cities has economic productivity gains for the entire country. According to modelling by the Regional Australia Institute, whose recent report finds that an additional increase in regional populations of simply 0.8% above base case scenario, so taking the overall population beyond Australia's major cities to 11 million people by 2032, would deliver an additional $13.8 billion to total national GDP, thanks to increased productivity in regional areas. Our own study highlighted the collective significance of populations in regional Australia. Over three million people, around about the equivalent of South Australia, Tasmania, the ACT and the Northern Territory combined, live in our largest 21 regional cities beyond the state and um, territorial capitals. Think regional and lifestyle destinations like Cairns, satellite cities like Geelong or Newcastle, and regional centres like Wagga Wagga and, of course, Albury, Wodonga. Now, many of these cities are already larger than 100,000 people, which is the point at which researchers suggest the benefits of agglomeration begin. If these areas continue to expand overall and around about the rate that they've been going, about 1.5% per annum, they'll take on the equivalent of half of Sydney and Melbourne's pre-pandemic population growth levels, more than another Canberra per decade. So just as the international evidence shows, the planners, regional developers and local leaders that we spoke to in our study emphasised that to continue along this path, access to major city markets through ports, regular air services and rail is going to be absolutely critical. It's not just connectivity to the major cities, of course. Our interviewees told us that internal and intra-regional connectivity, walking, cycling, efficient bus routes for commuters across regional networks are all important for supporting and sustaining growth. But the key inhibitors, the lack of sufficient healthcare services, 
the lack of good education opportunities in many cases, a lack of affordable housing, are holding regional areas back. The Regional Australia Institute again highlights the shocking discrepancies in regional and, and rural health services, with around 30% fewer medical practitioners per capita than the capital cities, a problem made worse by distance and accessibility issues. In talking to regional and local planners and economic development professionals, we heard optimism about the future potential to retain and attract populations and firms, with the COVID-driven population turnaround proving that there is certainly demand for rural and regional ways of life. But we heard a lot of despondency as well over the lack of sustained support to forward fund the physical and the social infrastructure that regional areas need to support their growth, the water and sewer, cultural facilities, sporting fields, that local councils can't afford to do alone. Our interviewees called for a shift in how funding for regional areas is provided, away from the competitive grant processes which drain resources, and instead towards regional cooperation and governance. Facilitated, for instance, through organisations such as the Riverina and Murray Joint Organisation, or the Ramja, which is a very catchy title, and I understand it does very good work in this area. But this, this type of model certainly provides the template for regional cooperation rather than competition. Just as in Manchester, the United Kingdom, or around the new Aerotropolis in uh, Western Sydney, place-based strategic funding arrangements, city or regional deals, can bring all three levels of government together, catalyzing important new opportunities. Our interviewees told us of the urgent, but also exciting opportunities to reimagine and demonstrate models of environmentally resilient growth as we transition to a zero net carbon future. Regional communities are literally at the front line of the climate crisis, facing increasing natural disasters from heat to fire to drought and flood. They can and they must develop and demonstrate new models for resilient settlement, economic growth, energy transition. Investment in regional knowledge industries is critical for this. Most of Australia's strongest growing regional centres benefit from regional universities, which support local skill development and employment, such as the role being played now by Southern Cross University at the epicentre of Lismore's flood relief and rebuilding efforts with its internationally recognised experts in environmental engineering and its work in the regenerative agricultural space. Or La Trobe University, my colleague Aunt Julie's home, which is working with partners like the Bendigo Sustainability Group and others around the adoption of solar energy and a host of environmental innovations such as the Australia Zero Emissions House. But it must be said that regional Australia is desperately underserved by access to universities and tertiary education opportunities. Only one in five university students is from regional areas and regional universities struggle to attract the recognition and funding of their city, their sandstone counterparts. It needn't and it shouldn't be this way. Given the urgent need for skilled labour in regional areas, investing in regional universities and the TAFE sector is long overdue. 
And if I can finish by recognising the other often overlooked strength in regional areas, and that's the cultural economy. We know that the arts is a critical sector of Australia's overall economy, producing around $14 billion in GDP per year and creating many flow-on economic opportunities. Performances, the visual arts, writing, arts festivals, all help underpin regional economies and tourism, as well as, of course, greatly um, improving everyone's quality of life. One in six of Australia's professional artists live in regional towns, yet studies show they're earning much less than their urban counterparts and may not be able to sustain their creative practice into the future. Demand for engagement with First Nations art is only growing. One in three Australians, including those in regional areas, now regularly attend First Nations arts events, including visual arts, craft, music, dance, storytelling and theatre. So institutions like this inspiring Murray Art Museum, Albury, Marma, with its fantastic program of events and activities and its superb growing collection of incredible pieces, like Wiradjuri artist Carla Dixon's incredible warrior women in the next room, which I had the pleasure of looking at this afternoon. They play such a critical role in the cultural, the social and the economic future of our regions. So in conclusion, look, with all due respect to Gough Whitlam, reimagining regional futures doesn't start and it doesn't end in Canberra. Your own visionaries, your own leaders are right here. But to bring about the regional renaissance that we now know is possible, we do need strong leadership at the Commonwealth level once more to articulate and to stand behind a national plan for distributing population growth and distributing economic opportunities beyond the major cities to benefit both metropolitan and regional Australia. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's very obvious your ties back to the regions is, is very important and you still remain very passionate and enthusiastic about the opportunities that regional Australia has. So thank you very much for that presentation. So we'll turn to our panellists now. We've got a few questions that we'll ask. First question I'd, I'd like to direct to Joani Edna. Looking back, what stands out for you as a legacy from the Gough Whitlam times? I think Mr Whitlam saw the need for our people to put a change in. So I think he's left a legacy of promoting reconciliation with people, my people. He made Edway acknowledging Aboriginal Australia rights to Australians, the land, the return of traditional land, we're in, Northern, in the Northern Territory, acknowledge the Gurunji people, and I believe it was there that the new laws for Aboriginal people, like Land Rights Acts, uh, resettlement, uh, which was uh, in Aubrey, the Loans Commission and the legal services. I believe there's changes that have come through Mr Whitlam. We were resettled into Aubrey, Wodonga, Aubrey mainly, taken away to me from my family. We, was, we are a community people. We are caring and sharing people. We share with one another and we care for one another. So our families are always been thing. But I think when they done the resettlement, they didn't think that. They thought they were just giving us housing and um, 
better schooling for our children too. But today you can see a difference that maybe it was something that had to be, I'm not sure. And um, that's mainly the, what I see for my people anyhow. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Next question is over to Andrew. Um, Andrew, you've long been an advocate for light rail for Albury-Wodonga. Do you think it's regional city such as Albury-Wodonga is suitable for a major infrastructure project of, of that sort of scale? Yes is the short answer. Um, I think it's yes for, for two reasons. One, it's good planning. We know that major public transport, things like that, absolutely catalyse urban regeneration, really coalesce around you know, your transport movements. Um, in the Albury-Donga example, I think it could bring the two cities together, really be that sort of sustainable, equitable, accessible kind of um, connector that we need for urban areas. And the second reason is that it's our fair share. Uh, if you go to Sydney or Melbourne at the moment, there's projects like Suburban Rail Loop, which is 50 to $100 billion. Tunnels are being dug in Sydney. There's metro projects. There's the recently announced $11 billion for the station development at Central. So if you take the top three projects for both Sydney and Melbourne, it's about $75 billion each. And if you bring that to a per capita basis back to Albury-Wodonga, that's about $1.5 billion, and that would get you a train line from the top of Albury to the bottom of Wodonga, mm. and that's just per, a per capita expectation that we should be asking for. One of the challenges in, in regional cities is always that public transport, and you touched on a couple of points around accessibility. Do you think that would make a difference and, and attract more people to come to regional centres and, and make it easier for those choices? I think it would. I think it would also start to answer some of those questions like sustainability or, you know, here for those people that know Albury-Wodonga, places like Lavington that probably haven't had much love for quite some time. Um, you know, public transport, I think, is often, as we're seeing in Canberra, the catalyst for, for density and development. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Move on to Julie. Julie, the way we learn has changed and, and universities have embraced online learning. What do you think this means for the future of education and, and what do we need to protect? It's a bit of a tough one. Um, with COVID, it revealed um, that there's many people who do study well online and open up opportunities. We just don't have enough campuses around our sites. It's particularly important for our cohort uh, in regional areas. There's a high proportion of women who study mature age. They have kids, they can't travel. So it gives them an opportunity that they couldn't have. Other people coming from high school have decided not to continue in tertiary education. They had a couple of bad years and they're uninspired and they don't know what it could be. So it's a bit, a bit of a mixed review. So we actually have to completely reconsider what education is and how we deliver it. And I think right now we're making some inroads and in doing a combination. Where that affects planning in our societies is the value of that face-to-face -face component. If you take planning as a profession, there's key things. Number one is learning how to observe your spaces and places and people. Then it's about framing a problem. What works, what doesn't work and why. Then it's about how, do you, how to investigate it. And then from that finding solution, all of that requires mediation, negotiation, listening, working with diverse people. Those are the sorts of things that you learn at a university, but those cultures have now been lost. Because with three years out, those cultures are actually gone. They have to be recreated. So that creates that problem. But moving on from there, if we can keep those components and get people back in their cities and towns looking around, then they can engage and they can learn to figure out what is a good city, what is a bad city, and how to make that happen. But a really strong component of that will be the social isolation 
and the willingness to engage. In, in regional cities, and you know, Aubrey Wodonga is very blessed to have the choice of tertiary education that we do. How important do you think that is to the future of those cities and those opportunities that they create? It's incredibly important. So over 40% of metro people living in metro areas have a university degree. Less than half of people in regional areas do. Right now we're seeing, let's say in the city of Bendigo, 25% lower people engaging even in TAFE. We need pathways from school into TAFE, into university, any which way to get through. If we don't, we're not going to have the critical thinkers, the problem solvers. It might be okay now when there's a skill shortage, but going into the future, um, people who didn't get the higher education will be pipped at the post by other people who could, and it's really going to hold us back in terms of the way that we're going. 80% of all future jobs will require university education, especially with digitization, advanced manufacturing, new forms of agricultural development, and key industries that we have here. So it's, it's incredibly important, actually. We need to inspire. And I guess one of those elements that comes out of that is the partnerships between industry, business, and the universities, which can happen in regional areas, mm. I would hope to see much easier. Yeah. Absolutely. Than, yeah. Yeah, and just for all of you out there, if you're in industry, it might be linking in with the university. If kids and young people and older people cannot travel because of online courses, how can you contribute to their education? Because we need to learn the identity of what it means to be a planner, how to think like a planner. And um, that can't be done on your own. It's through that interaction. So all of us have a place in this. And so we have to learn this together. And it's not going to be easy. But uh, I said it as a challenge because it could make it pretty interesting. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm going to phrase this question for all the panel members and I'll open it up. We talk about the legacy that's been left by Gough Whitlam and from back in the early 70s and particularly we see it all around us here in Albury-Wodonga. But if we look to the future, in 50 years' time, if we had a government with a similar vision and commitment and they resourced and took advantage of the opportunities that are out there for regional Australia presently, what's the legacy that you would like to see for Albury-Wodonga or a regional area of similar size? in that 50-year time. Nicole, I might throw to you to start that, okay? Right. <laughs> Look, I think I've, I've, made my, um, I've made my pitch to you. If I would like to see one thing change about the way that we invest in regional areas, it would actually be starting with foundational infrastructure, which to my mind is universities. I compare regional Australia to regional United States and regional Australia is in many ways better off. But one of the anchors of economic development in, in regional Europe, in regional United States, are actually fantastic educational institutions. You know, college towns anchor much of regional America. The world's best universities are in, you know, regional you know, um, the United Kingdom. And of course, around universities, you get wonderful health infrastructure and you get fantastic cultural infrastructure as well. So I would be rethinking actually where and how we invest in higher education. And I hope my employer, the University of Sydney, isn't listening. We need, of course, all of the research funding and investment in education that we can get in the cities as well. But I do think that knowledge industries in regional Australia are really, really critical. And the other element that comes with that is the youth and the yeah. energy and the imagination and yeah. discovery that yeah. 
yeah. tradition in recent years or, or over the last 20 or 30 years has declined from regional areas as they move to those metro. Yeah. There's an opportunity there to revitalise and, and continue to grow. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and if I can throw in one more sort of research pitch, I noticed a study by a colleague of mine actually at Western Sydney University who'd surveyed young people who left regional Australia and was really amazing because many of those people who'd left said they wanted to return either to their own, to their own, you know, regional area country town or to another part of regional Australia. And my wonderful colleague Ray Dufty Jones sort of re-interpreted that, you know, sort of dismaying finding that so many people were leaving the regions to say what an incredible opportunity to attract that um, talented cohort of people back to regional Australia with their experience and their education. Fantastic. Thank you. And to our other panel members, Andrew? I'll jump in. Um, I think in the spirit of Whitlam, I think if in 50 years' time we look back and said, gee, wasn't it good that we put urban planners in charge <laughs> instead of economists or yeah, yeah. accountants or, you know, I think, I think it'd be great if we could look back and be like, you know what, actually we really cared about the places we lived in. We wanted them to be efficient and beautiful and culturally, like, welcoming and, and kind of together. And, you know, if we, I think we're in this interesting position right now as regional centres experiencing some of this kind of tree change scenario where we can actually learn all that we've learnt around the world from, you know, urbanist theories and apply them now before it's too late. I fear that we're in this position where we're just allowing our regional centres to sprawl like our city counterparts did 80 years ago rather than taking those lessons and learnings and applying them here where we can actually, you know, do it better. Uh, I'd start with playgrounds, actually. <laughs> um, and the reason why is learning to play is fundamental for our social skills and everything else. But it's actually the very first step that kids engage with their world and start to learn about where they live. But it means that it's not just playgrounds and parks, although I have to say it's a great tourism thing. I travel here because of the playgrounds. Apologies to my friends. Um, but the reason why I also say, say, state that is because that links us, if we start to look back, it's about early childhood education, it's about how we design our spaces and places, it's about how we interact and why, if you look at this whole um, precinct here, the way that people play in those spaces and as adults, the way we socialise. So if we start to look through at that, we start to understand what the livability is, the value is and what's important to us and it's something that each individual can relate to and it starts the story and the narrative. Um, and within that, it, that's where it links back yet again to education, that very fundamental aspect of the day-to-day -day education that doesn't cost money, but it is about care and it is about community. And that's what then will open up the opportunity and aspiration to think, I can do this, I can actually make my world better. I think they're all great messages that we need to get back to the government and need to continue to push for, and it's worth fighting for, particularly for the regions and the opportunities that are there. Cole, in, in your speech that there's some lessons that have been learnt but really when we look even internationally the opportunities that we've got to grow and to, to grasp those opportunities now and make a difference for the future it, it still exists and it, it's still there and it's a combination of that education infrastructure the social the culture and the livability that all makes that wonderful mix that those of us here in particular this wonderful cities really understand and appreciate 
Michael, if I can add one more thing, and I'm sure your audience probably got any, uh, you know, like a plethora of pictures that they would like to, um, to put on the table. But there is a real opportunity, particularly in places like Albury, Wodonga, and you know, Lismore's in reconstruction, but many regional areas are facing quite a lot of growth, and there is a real opportunity to, to show what a resilient pattern, what genuinely you know, resilient and zero net carbon as well types of settlement patterns can look like. And I think that's, you know, if we look back in 50 years, it would be wonderful to say, look, regional Australia showed us how to live in this, you know, in this climate and in this country. And of course, the other thing, as Auntie Edna reminded us, so important to have our future actually being led by our First Nations leaders as well, with a caring for country, you know, front and centre of all of the decisions that are made moving forward. And there's so much we can learn from mm. our, those that have gone before us. Mm. One of the things, there, a, a genuine message is around genuine partnerships uh, with government, community and, and local community particularly. Uh, we look forward to that. Honey, Edna, did you have any thoughts or comments that you'd like to make? A comment um, just about was said here today. Um, but about learning, uh, my people, like I said, has been here for thousands of years. They've been resilient and we can learn from one another and that's what I'd like to see us do, you know, learning from one another. Thank you very much. It's a very simple but very strong and symbolic message that we need to pay attention to. Andrew, I'll, I'll throw this one to you. What does density done well mean to you? I think, I mean, this is a question that's relevant in, in all different scales of, of urbanity. I think there are some really good examples of density done well here in Albury. I think the, for those that are local, the, the Hamilton building is probably a really good example of what a lot of other cities have been talking about in terms of the missing middle. It's that kind of six, seven storeys in a city, ground floor retail, with some nice architecture, really holds the corner well. So I think there are some physical examples of, of good medium density happening here in Albury already. Ahead of tonight, I looked at some of the, the Whitlam kind of paraphernalia that was being developed when they were first had some of their original ideas. And a lot of that, you know, we're talking about 30% of those suburbs were supposed to be uh, a medium density or a townhouse typology, and that never happened probably through budgets. But I think it's interesting that we've, you know, a lot of that patterning and the design approach that the Whitlam era took was about sort of fingers of green, keeping nature, intermingling with suburbia, but with kind of, I call it like a crusty edge of density. So I think there is a role that we can kind of find here. You know, maybe, maybe the answer to where's the missing middle is in regional Australia. That'd be great. And it is that, that question that we've seen evolve in, in regional centres where what market acceptance and appreciation and then even the changing demographics of, of how we live and the ages that we're living to and the household structures are changing that demand and the market's responding. Any thoughts on that? Uh, sorry for the people that aren't from Albury, but I'm just even thinking across the road here is the, the TNG building, which actually has, I think, some of the earliest apartments here in Albury as well. So, you know, there was a time back when this city was probably only a couple of thousand people where they were building apartments. And we have this really incredibly fine grain mixed-use centre as central Albury, yet we somehow in the last 50 years have just ignored that and be like, oh yes, this place that everybody loves to hang out, let's not copy that, let's do our own thing over here, which is super low density sprawl. Um, great, well done. Mm -hmm. now, I, 
I think, I think you've sold everyone in this room. <laughs> Low density done badly. <laughs> Next question, and I'll, I'll throw a quick one to you, Nicole, if I can. Do you expect population growth in the regions to rise? Well, thanks for asking me that question. Is it too touchy for any of our local panellists to pick up? Look, I, I don't know, I'm going to have a wild, crazy guess and, yeah, I think population growth will continue. It's been running at a bit above, in areas like Albury, Wodonga, it's been hovering at slightly above the national average and I think in other areas with strategic, you know, um, locational advantages that are able to be capitalised on, I think there will be population growth because we've seen, you know, over the past couple of years, people actually do want to move to regional areas. You know, that's a given. Um, there are many uncertainties in terms of our economic future, but I think, um, you know, the technology is available as well to enable people to maintain their connections to the major cities while working in a regional area and population growth does help diversify um, regional economies in and of itself. So, yeah, I do think there will be, um, there will be more growth yeah. in regional areas. The future's certainly bright mm. and the, the challenges of COVID have, have actually broken down some of those barriers mm. to open up opportunity and we look forward to seeing that come to fruition. What I'll do now, is there any questions from the audience? I'll open it up to the audience if we've got anybody. We've got a roving mic. Um, the reason people come to places like Albury Wodonga is because they're not like a city. Um, you talked about this economic agglomeration that happens 100,000 people. Is there such thing as an optimal size for a regional city? Oh, that is the best question. We tried to answer that as part of the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute study I did and so did others. And actually, it's, you know, there's a big debate amongst regional economic development planners, which I'm not in that camp. Um, look, some people would say the sweet spot is around 300,000 people, which, you know, you see very successful European cities at 300,000 people. I don't think there is an answer to that, to be perfectly honest. I suspect there might be too small and there might possibly be too large if, you know, density isn't mm. done well. And, um, but the, the things that are really important, I think, as you grow, not only is the, you know, environmental piece, but it's also the social equity piece. And unfortunately, what we've seen is that as... Um, urban areas have become more economically successful, they, it, that success hasn't been shared, you know, and, and we've seen very uneven and, you know, and quite pronounced and more pronounced spatial disadvantage in the major cities as well as in the regions. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that we need to look at when we talk about, you know, optimal growth. I think it's not really a magic size number. It's actually a question around, you know, how we do it and and who's benefiting and how we understand real growth and well-being. Julie, yeah. did you have any thoughts? I did, actually. I think um, I know that in Victoria, and I'm sure it's at other parts of Australia from what I've read, we actually have a housing problem, and it's limiting the growth and the ability for regional areas to achieve, some regional areas to achieve what they want to achieve. So we have a problem with how we do housing and who we expect to do housing. I don't have a problem with market playing a role, but so does government. It's abdicated its responsibility at many levels for planning for the future, for planning for the demographics, for making sure that it's affordable. In the town where I'm living, people are moving out because they can't afford to live there anymore. There's three prisons. 
we're looking at different ways to actually do worker housing. Worker housing is not fly in and fly out, as you're probably familiar with now. People who serve coffees, it's the childcare workers, it's the nurses. We have doctors going to Ballarat instead of Bendigo because they can't live anywhere. Um, and so, and we're going to have the Commonwealth Games. Uh, so is Ballarat, so is Geelong, so is Gippsland. They won't be able to house the athletes, <laughs> potentially, and the other people who support that. There is a serious issue. We see housing as a private investment. We don't actually, within our national or, or state lexicon, see it as an investment. And because we don't see it as an investment, we're not investing in our people or our areas. And um, this will be quite radical for some of you. I think we need to get rid of capital gains tax. I think we need to have 25% affordable housing in any new development. I'm not talking about social housing but affordable housing. We need to look at co-ops. We need to look at how you do intentional living. We need to allocate sites for experiments for how we can live differently because the climate is changing. Um, we have different population needs and it's linked to transport. It's linked to all these web of things that we're all aware of and we need to grow up about it. I'll leave there. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, look, and all fantastic points and I'm sure everyone in the room agrees with the sentiments that have been passed on. One more. Final question. <laughs> Hi. Um, how do we get community on board with this and trust us um, in what we're proposing? You know, I grew up in Townsville. In the 90s, we were meant to have a monorail. You know, Andrew, people see on the news the tram dis uh, discussion, light rail. They're cynical about it um, because we keep talking about these grand ideas and we never deliver. How do we change that? Because they need to want what we're talking about for it to actually happen. I mean, this might sound radical, but at, at, at some point, I think we need... We've kind of allowed business cases and reports and all these sorts of things to, to be the, 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 how we do things these days. We've sort of lost the ability, I think, as, as built environment professionals to sort of trust our gut sometimes, to kind of... You know, there's things that we know that, that should work or that can work um, and kind of to back those in and to kind of... I think in part, and this is a generational, you know, you know decades worth of um, conditioning almost, where community is sceptical of everything. Community, you know, we've never had lower kind of trust in politicians or services. We've kind of, I think this is a really big question, but I think on kind of planning matters, we need to do good planning, you know, back ourselves in and do things and maybe, you know, ask for forgiveness later. Closing it down on, on that, that point. This building that we're in here is a classic example of that, of having the, taking the stand and, and really standing up and saying these things are important for our city, for our community, for our future and our children that are going to come along and how it will build and add to that fabric. There was a lot of opposition to this building, but if we look around today, what it creates and the opportunities it's opened up mean that we are a city that competes on a national basis and, and will continue to do so. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.